Our scripture reading today is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. Therefore, each of you must... Uh, Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need." Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. Well, thank you for that to the team and everyone. Good morning, everyone. I tell you, the, the, the My Lighthouse song, as we uh, started, I turned to Marvin and I said, I hope our insurance is paid up, uh, to which he assured. And we need to have more songs like that for us adults, I think. Like, I don't think it's fair that the kids get to dance around and have fun. And... So, yeah, worship team, make it so. And it's summertime. It's, it's the best time for it. Isn't summer just a fantastic time of year? I don't know about you, but I just love summer. Kind of life seems to slow down through summer. It's not as crazy. It's not as manic. It's not... Yes, there's still things that need to be done Uh, And maybe things more around the house than in the office, but there's still stuff that's got to be taken care of. Uh, But it's it's a little calmer. It's a little more relaxed. For me, summer is a great time to reset. Maybe it's because the days are a little longer. There's a little more sunlight, and we all know how sun lifts our moods. You know, a little bit of vitamin D, a little bit of warmth. Uh, You know, even though it is such a short season, it's still enough to kind of lift the spirits, lift the mood. Maybe during summer, we're able to take stock of where we're at in life and We consider our lives and we're able to go, hey, is this where I want to go into the fall, into the new year? Is there something I want to change? It's just a great time to reset. Of course, we we know from experience that our lives don't actually have a nice handy little reset button. You know, it's not like a computer system or some electronic device that when it gets clogged up and, and it kind of, it's not doing what it should do, you can just switch it off and switch it back on or you hit that reset button. Our lives don't have those. And so we're not able to reset on our own. But thankfully, Jesus is in the business of resetting people. I love how it's phrased. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is past, and behold, the new has come. In Jesus Christ, we are reset. Perhaps you're joining with us today, you, you kind of got dragged along because your kids had a great time this last week. Uh, actually, looking at the size of the volunteer team, it might not have been your child that was dragged along. It was your wife or your spouse or somebody in your family volunteered. They had so much fun. They've brought you along this morning anyway so that you can see what happens at White Rock Baptist. And uh, you might be visiting us today, and over the last couple of weeks, we've been preaching a series called Reset. Reset. 
Two weeks ago, we looked at resetting our hearts uh, and then also resetting our mind. But we realized that we need to start by resetting our hearts. And we asked Jesus to reset our heart because we know that lasting change begins internally. If my heart doesn't change, and then added to that, I asked Jesus to reset my mind. If both my heart and my mind are not reset, not renewed, not regenerated, I might start some new habits. I might do some things that are good uh, and that might have a little bit of a benefit. But over time, I'm likely to default back to those same patterns, back to the, the same habits that put me in that place where I needed to be reset. And so I asked Jesus to reset my heart and my mind. You know, Jesus was being tested one day and clearly being asked all sorts of questions. Some were probably good, some probably not. But one question was a great question. One young man asked Jesus, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? In a way, if I could paraphrase, that guy was asking Jesus, Jesus, what's the meaning of life? What's the simple answer? What do I need to know to do this thing called life? They understood it as commands from God. They understood it as the law that God had given. So he says, Jesus, what's the greatest command? To which Jesus says, that's a great question. Of course, that's me paraphrasing the Greek. Jesus says, that's quite easy to answer. The greatest commandment is simply this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you want to sum up the law, if you want to sum up the commandments, if you want to sum up the meaning of life, it's love God, vertical relationship, and love others, horizontal relationship. So today, if we're talking about resetting, and the last couple of weeks we've looked at resetting internally and resetting that vertical relationship, then it is only logical and it makes perfect sense to go on to resetting relationships, resetting the horizontal relationship with others around us. But here's the thing. It's not very easy, is it? Let me illustrate this from from marriage. Uh, I think this is probably one of the easy ways to do it. You can go to the next slide. It's just a little uh, a picture. There was a young bride-to-be who, like most young brides-to-be, had spent many of, much of her life dreaming about her wedding day and the marriage to come. And this was going to be the perfect day. You know, everything was all sorted. Everything was in order. It was just going to be beautiful. It was going to be a fairy tale wedding, everything fantastic. And, and she had it all in her mind. But as the day started to approach and as she got closer to that wedding day, she started to panic because she was worried that the day might not go according to her plans. And it might not be as good and as perfect as what she's hoping it would be. So she shared this with the minister who would be officiating at the wedding, just the panic and the concern and all of that. And the minister said, it's really, really easy. I understand your concerns, your worries. Let me walk you through it. And you'll, you'll be able to kind of just get through the day, no worries. There's just three things you need to remember. The wedding day starts in the church. And in the church, as you come down that aisle, that's where it kind of just all begins. And so you focus on where you're starting in the aisle and walk down the aisle. The aisle ends up at the altar. 
And when you get to the altar, we'll all be waiting for you there, and I'll be waiting with, with uh, your bride, your, nearly said bride, with your groom. Uh, I'll be there. I'll lead you through it. It's all good. You just follow me up at the altar, and then we'll finish off with a hymn, and, and then it'll be done. And if you just follow my lead, it'll all be okay. So she said, fantastic. She committed that to memory. Now, of course, you can understand some of the concern on the wedding day by the family and friends around because they heard her repeating the little mantra as she came down. And she was quietly saying to herself, I'll alter him. I'll alter him. I'll alter him. The truth is, if anybody who's been married for a couple of years knows, we can't alter anybody. We have a hard enough time just trying to alter ourselves. So resetting relationships is about us. What is it we need to do to reset our relationship? Yes, with the help of God, with the help of the Holy Spirit as he changes us. You know, I was going to ask the question, has anybody ever been hurt by anybody? And that's kind of like a duh, no-brainer. We've all been hurt by somebody, which probably means we've all hurt somebody as well. And while we might like to think about those who have hurt us, we don't like to think about how have I hurt somebody else. But if we talk about resetting relationships, we have to look inwardly. But I need to give you a disclaimer. I'm not good at relational advice. I know this because my daughter was once having a problem with one of her good friends, and she climbed in the car after school, and she she was visibly upset, and she explained the problem with her friend and what her friend had done, to which I said, well, just tell your friend she's being a cow. (laughs) Thankfully, thankfully, my daughter's mom has far more wisdom in relational advice. And so instead of me giving relational advice, let's turn to Scripture. You know, I quoted 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 just a moment ago. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 in context says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. For we who call Christ Lord... We have to understand that as Christ turns us and makes us into a new creation, a Christ-like creation, as he reconciles us to God, that vertical relationship, so he gives to us this ministry of reconciliation. Yes, a big chunk of that is presenting and proclaiming the gospel so that others would also be reconciled to God. But a big part of that reconciliation ministry that we have with one another is we are reconciled, we are made one. There is unity amongst us, and that is God's plan. 
That as we are united in Christ, as we are reconciled together in Christ, so the world looks in and says there must be something about that gospel message because look at how those people who are all different from different walks of life, different backgrounds, even different cultural upbringings, they are united and they are one. There must be something to that. So how do we do this? Well, I believe this morning's passage that we read at the beginning answers If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to maybe make some notes this morning. Generally, I like to keep it fairly straightforward and fairly simple. When I preach, I like to give one main theme, one main point. This morning, just because it's summer, it's a beautiful day, I feel like I want to give you some extra. So today, I'm giving you four points. Any teacher will tell you, and there are a couple of you in the congregation this morning, most people don't remember four points. So if you want to remember the four points on resetting relationships this morning, I would encourage you to make some notes. And they come out of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32, the portion of Scripture that we read at the beginning. This is how we practically put on that new life. This is how we are made right with people around us. I believe this passage gives us four steps to resetting relationships, and and today I want to be intensely practical. Now, the last couple of weeks as we've gone through Scripture, we've definitely had more of a spiritual slant and focus, uh, a, a more theological slant. Today, I want to look at what does Scripture say to us practically? How do we become right and reset relationships with those around us? The first point that comes out of the passage this morning is we confront conflict truthfully. Confront conflict truthfully. For those of us who have ever been in any sort of relationship, we know that relationships have conflict. Cindy and I have had the joy of doing pre-marriage counseling with many couples through the years. And we love talking about conflict Partly because it helps us kind of keep reminded that this stuff happens. But we always say to a newly married, a couple getting ready for marriage that don't worry, these tips that we're giving you around conflict, you're going to get to practice this on your honeymoon. (laughs) And of course, they're all never, no way. That's the time of love. Everything is great. It's all awesome. Any married people here brave enough to go, yeah, we had some conflict on honeymoon? Yeah, it's when you practice it. There is no such thing as a conflict-free marriage. There's no such thing as a conflict-free relationship. Even friendship with our best friends, there are times when there are conflicts in our relationship. You know, that conflict becomes an opportunity to grow, to grow closer as we confront conflict with truth. How does the world typically handle conflict? One of two ways. One way is by stuffing it and just kind of trying to bury it. We'll sweep it under the carpet. We'll just ignore it. They don't know what they're doing. We'll cut them some slack in that regard. But the problem with burying it and the problem with kind of pushing it aside and shoving it under the the rug, so to speak, is it slowly builds up and it slowly accrues until eventually you get to the same place that the other side handles conflict. They just get through a lot quicker and that is they explode. And there's violence, and there's outbursts, and there's anger, and there's rage. That's how the world deals with conflict. And so the scriptures this morning say to us, don't do that. Don't handle conflict the way the world does. But in verse 25, speak the truth. 
Rather speak the truth in love. I, I love how as it speaks about that and it adds truth in there, it reminds us that, that we need to check our hearts as we confront conflict. What's our motive for doing this? Is it simply because uh, we think we're right, they're wrong, and we want to let them know that? Is it because we want to get our own way back? We want to get even with what's happened to us? That's not, conflicting, that's not confronting conflict in truth and with love. The message as we speak, as we deal, as we try and handle it, must be truthful. Rightly name the offense. Don't say things like, you always, or you never, because you and I both know that's not true. Rather to turn it and say, I I feel hurt, I feel offended when you do this. Deal with it with truth. Be truthful. I love how the passage as well speaks about don't let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with it now. Don't put it off. Of course, if the sun is already down and you're tired, maybe that's not the best time right there. But the point of Scripture is don't put it off. Don't forget about it. So when it says don't let the sun go down on your anger, it's saying deal with it immediately. Deal with it right away. Don't let it stew. Why? Because when we let it stew, that's when verse 29 happens, the corrupting talk that comes from our mouth. Rather, let no corrupting talk come. So deal with it immediately. Be quick about it. Let there be love in there. Proverbs 15 verse 1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You see, we can end up confronting the issue in an angry way, and we can make it ten times worse. This is why Scripture says to us, in relationship, deal with it in truthful ways. Deal with it with love. How do we confront conflict truthfully? In love. But not only do we confront conflict truthfully, the second portion of the passage this morning tells us to address anger under control. This is why in verse 26, in your anger, in fact, the the ESV translation of this says, be angry and do not sin. And maybe for some of us, there's almost a, wait, wait a minute, what do you mean be angry? We, we understand anger is something wrong. It's, it's the wrong response to what's going on. Surely there's no place for anger. But you know what? When, when I read Scripture and I read about God the Father, the Lord the Lord in Exodus 34, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. I understand that even our Heavenly Father knows how to deal with anger in a way that is not sinful. We read of Jesus fastening a cord into a whoop and driving people out of the sanctuary in anger because they had turned his Father's house that should be a place of prayer into a marketplace. So it's not the anger that's the issue. It's how we respond to anger. It's how we deal with our anger. We need to address our anger under control. This is why James writes in James chapter 1, everyone should be slow to become angry, for a person's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So why do we get get angry? Sorry, We get angry because we feel hurt. We feel offended. 
And so we want to respond to that offense. And just as you've hurt me, well, I'm going to hurt you back because I want to get even. I want to get equal and level the playing field. And so I'm going to respond in an angry outburst. Where does uncontrolled anger lead? Goodness, you only have to pick up one day's newspaper to see where uncontrolled anger leads to mistakes, to, to violence, to broken relationships, even to murder. This is what we read right back in the beginning of Scripture in Genesis chapter 4. When Cain and Abel as these brothers, and, and Cain clearly is angry with his brother because of the way God is receiving his brother's offering and his brother's worship. And God speaks to Cain and warns him and says, sin is crouching at your door. It seeks its desires to have mastery over you. You need to have mastery over it. Because if you don't, the results will be catastrophic. And Cain didn't heed that advice and that warning. And in anger, Cain murders his own brother. This is why in this passage in Ephesians that we've just read, Paul says, don't give the devil a foothold. And you might kind of read that and go, what do you mean give the devil a foothold? We're talking about anger. You know, I spoke a moment ago about don't let the sun go down on, on an argument and on a, a relational issue, particularly if you're married. I think married people might get this this morning. You've ever had an argument with your spouse and then gone to bed? You don't have to shout this out as an answer. But what's the one thing you don't want when you get into bed? Just think about that for a moment. You've had an argument. You're angry with your spouse. You're upset. You go to bed. You're pouting. You're waiting for them to say sorry. You don't want them to touch you. You don't want them to, to touch you in that place. You know why? Because the devils, they're sleeping between the two of you. <laughs> That's what Paul says. Don't give the devil a foothold. Deal with it and, and deal with it in a controlled way so that the relationship might begin to heal. You see, because if you don't deal with it, you're going to wake up the next morning with bitterness and with even more hurt. And then it takes ages to deal. So Paul says, control your anger because that leads to whole relationships. That leads to peace. That leads to joy. So address anger under control. Thirdly, verse 29 answers this, communicate graciously. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Another translation talks about corrupting language. You know, this is when you, you're so hurt, you're so angry, you're so upset, and you turn, and it's no longer about the issue, but it's the you comments. You're lazy. Well, you're just like your mom. You never do this. You don't listen. That's corrupting language. That's unwholesome talk. This is why Paul says, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. So let your words not be about you and your hurt, not just about what you need, not just about you saying, I need to get this off my chest. No, the words are to build up the other person in relationship, to focus on them, to bring unity and, and, and peace and wholeness to this. You might need to pause and pray. That's the spiritual version of counting to 10, by the way. 
Now, verse 28, I kind of have to deal with it because it, it, it is a bit odd in the middle of this. Verse 28 says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Now, I understand that the entire passage in context is around spiritual, uh, the life of uh, those who are saints, those who are in Christ. What does it mean to live a Christian life? And so there's conduct for living. So I get that this in the context of that whole passage, passage makes sense. Yes, you know, it kind of seems obvious. If somebody is in your midst and they've been stealing and they're not working with their own hands, well, really, they should stop. But here it's also in this context of relationship, and it's in this context of speaking truth lovingly to one another. What could Paul possibly mean over here? You know, I, I think maybe there's an illustration that Paul links this into. You see, when I'm in relationship with someone, if I use my words in the wrong way, or I withhold the right words, it is a little bit like stealing from that person. I'm taking from them when in fact I should be giving to them. And I should be giving wholesome words, words that build up, words that are according to their needs. Even though I might be offended, even though I may have been hurt, I still bring unity in the loving and gracious way that I communicate with this individual. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Communicate graciously. And then lastly, pursue unity with forgiveness. Pursue unity with forgiveness. In verse 30, Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The scriptures teach us that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is a person. It's not an impersonal spiritual force. We know this because the third person of the Trinity can be grieved, can be hurt by what we do. I remember an author by the name of Blake Coffey speaking around unity. And he made the, the comment, how can the spirit in you be at variance with the spirit in me if it is the same spirit? Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to disagree from time to time. That's going to happen. That doesn't mean that every now and then I'm going to read scripture or have some event happen and I'm going to interpret it in a certain way that might be different to you. But what it does mean is how do we respond to one another and how do we communicate in the midst of that? Because we can do it in such a way that brings division and destroys unity. And this is why Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Pursue unity with forgiveness. The Holy Spirit says, deal with disunity. I would go so far as to say that God hates, or the Spirit hates disunity in the body of Christ. Because he lives within us. And so Paul writes in verse 31 onwards, get rid of bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. But instead, verse 32, instead be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. 
You ever had that experience where maybe it's just me and maybe this is an overshare. Uh, you've showered and you're absentmindedly putting on the same clothing that you got out of in the first place and, and you're putting it on and you realize it's dirty clothing. Am I the only one that's ever stupidly done that? <laughs> that's what Paul's saying. Don't, you're cleaned in Christ. You're forgiven in Christ. Don't put on the old dirty clothing. Put on the clean clothes in Christ. Some of you might go, no, well, Brian, what you see is what you get. This is just who I am. Can I lovingly and, and graciously say to you, no one wants to see you. No one wants to just get what we get. We want to see Christ formed in you. That's what we want to see. Just like you want to see Christ formed in me. And so, because I am forgiven in Christ, I seek to forgive others. And I put on that Christ-like character. I put on those clean clothes, for, for want of a better word, with kindness, with compassion. Now, some of you might be sitting right now and, and you're thinking in the concept of forgiving somebody else. And you might go, Brian, you don't understand what this person did to me. It's, it borders on, on being unforgivable and, and I cannot forgive them. This is why Paul bluntly says, Christ, God has forgiven you in Christ. Therefore, forgive others. Pursue forgiveness. Jesus taught us how to pray. And he said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You know, when it comes to relationships, and, and I know today I've kind of blurred that line around marriages, and my focus wasn't just marriage relationship, it's on all relationships. Maybe marriage is kind of the main one we can think of, but maybe it's parent to child or child to parent. Maybe it's to a sibling. Maybe it's to a colleague. Maybe it's to a longtime friend, and that relationship has been severed by some experience and some event. When it comes to relationships, you and I are probably in, in one of two places, if not in both places. There are those relationships to whom we need to go and seek forgiveness because we've done the hurting. We've caused the offense. We've said something, we've done something, or we've not said something, or not done something, but we've hurt. We need to go. And there's six little words that we say. The six little words we say is, I was wrong. Please forgive me. I, take ownership, that was me. I did that. Not, I'm sorry if you were offended by misunderstanding what went on. That's not an apology. I was wrong. It was what I did. And so I take ownership of that. And as I take ownership and as I come and apologize, I say, please forgive me. You might need to go to somebody to seek forgiveness. But you might also be on the other side. You might be the innocent party who's been offended, who's been hurt, and who needs to extend forgiveness. They might not come and ask for forgiveness. Don't wait until they do that. Don't let that offense take up residence in your mind. Go and give forgiveness. Extend forgiveness in Jesus' name and leave it to God 
to deal with ultimately. You know, Peter comes up to Jesus and, and he says to Jesus, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And he, he tries to be gracious. He says, up to seven times? Like, that seems like a good number. And Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 77 times. And Jesus wasn't giving a number there for us to count. It's not like on my fridge, I have a little checklist where I go, well, she's hurt me now 67 times. I better tell her she's only got 10 more times before I can't forgive her anymore. That's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, we don't count it. We extend forgiveness because we are forgiven. Now, hear me. Extending forgiveness to somebody who has hurt you, particularly if there is abuse or some sort of physical nature, does not mean you need to put yourself back in the place where that will take place again. That's not what forgiveness is. So forgiveness is not putting yourself in harm's way routinely and over and over again. If there are consequences because of sinful action, then those consequences need to be dealt with, especially if there are legal ramifications and further to that. But even as I let that happen, I can still extend forgiveness. And I know there are going to be days when that's really difficult. I know there are going to be days when my mind is going to dwell on that, and they're going to take up occupancy in my mind. And in that place, I'm going to need to pray. In that place, for some of us, we might need counseling. We might need somebody to walk with us through that. And I would encourage you, if you find yourself in that place, go and look for help. You might be married, and maybe the, for the rest of us, we look at your marriage and we go, hey, they, they've got a great marriage. They've been together for so many years, but we don't know what's going on at home, and together, you might be this far away from divorce. And you might say, our relationship is, is, is beyond repair. It's not. It can be repaired, but if you're that far gone, you're going to need help to get repair. Go and find help. If your relationship is not at that point, particularly if you're married, build a stronger marriage. Go do a marriage weekend. Go get a book. Do something. Find help to build those relationships. Let me close with, with this question. Who are you not at one with? So now I'm not just talking marriage. I'm talking relationally. Who are you not at one with? Because there is hurt or offense. Perhaps you've hurt them or they've hurt you. Paul writes to us and he says we need to reset our relationships. We do that by confronting conflict truthfully. And then we address our anger under control in the midst of that. We communicate graciously and we pursue unity with forgiveness. Both extending forgiveness and then asking for forgiveness. And I believe that as we do this, so we will find joy, so we will find completion and wholeness in our relationships with those around us. And you know the incredible thing as we live in that? A watching world will look in and go, how is that possible? I know the hurt that happened. I know the history. How is it possible that you're, you're close again? It is the work of Jesus Christ. As God our Father, by his Holy Spirit, has brought us together. And he's given us this ministry of reconciliation. That we too would help others become reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word 
reveals you and your love and your grace to us. It reveals the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Lord, it is also intensely practical. It also directs our everyday affairs. It it gives us wisdom for living here on this earth. It gives us wisdom and direction for how to live as your children, even in a, a fallen landscape. Even when we are prone to wonder and we are prone to sin. Father, you have created us and you've created us for community. Community with you and community with one another. So it only makes sense that Satan would seek to destroy that community. And he would seek to bring division. And how easy sometimes because he just uses us and our anger and our emotions and our responses. So, Father, this morning, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, once again, you would guide us and you would intervene even in our relationships, that horizontal with those around us. Father, I pray for those who, whether it is a marriage, whether it is parent or child or sibling, whether it's some other family member, whether it's a long-time friend, for those who find themselves in a relational breakdown, where there is disunity, oh God, would you be gracious there? And by your Spirit, would you bring unity? Help there to be grace. Help there to be love. Help there to be forgiveness, both extended and received. Father, for those that have hurt us, And perhaps we're holding on to that grudge. Oh God, by your spirit, would you help us forgive and let go and leave it into your hands, into your sovereign wisdom, that you might carry that burden. And as we do that, that Father, we would find wholeness and completion with one another and ultimately with you. For we ask this in the unifying and uniting name of Jesus Christ. And as your people, we pray as one and say, amen, amen.